Hey guys, won't kill too much time with this intro. I just want to tell you that this is our latest Q&A in the sustainable self-development Facebook group with Berge Fuggerly. And Berge answered a lot of cool questions in here with regards to training, nutrition, lifestyle, and even happiness. And if you want to be tuned in to Q&A webinars like this in the future, then join the sustainable self-development Facebook group and visit sustainableselfdevelopment.com to be up to date with everything that we have coming out in the near future. All right, that was it. And with that, enjoy this webinar with Berge. Hi, and welcome to Q&A number five. Uh, we have collected questions since last time. And uh, we said last time that this would be pre-recorded, but we figured I could just uh, do it myself. So I'm sitting here on the balcony of my apartment. It's 32 degrees, so it's quite warm here in uh, Norway at the moment. Just bragging about my view, as usual. Um, so today we have uh, some pretty cool questions. Um, I hope that you have followed some of the postings and discussions in the group. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on there uh, at the moment. We have some discussions around the effective reps model and there's like more and more uh, <clears throat> discussions around this. Not only did Carl Juneau mention it during his podcast a few weeks ago, or is it months ago now? And then Chris Beardsley started talking about it. He just called it stimulating reps. And now we have James Krieger, a uh, good friend of mine, and also um, just a great guy overall, uh, one of the smartest guys I know. Uh, and he's written quite an extensive uh, review on, well, the whole concept, basically. And, and uh, I, I think it's just a, a good model to, to sort of explain how some training methods uh, work better than others and um, how we can sort of calibrate the, the training stress. Uh, but, but let's not get too far into OCD land here and, and sort of uh, get stuck discussing the, you know, one rep or two reps from failure and... and, and, and you know, uh, it's it's the the curve is gonna be like it's it's a dose response curve that's basically flat at a certain point in time. So it, it's it's not gonna matter a whole lot. It's like it's like you know getting into these profound discussions on whether you should spend forty five minutes or fifty five minutes in the sun to get the optimal sun time. You know, it's the same thing. Uh, stimulus adaptation. We need to look at this as a moving target. So. Again, don't get too stuck on the numbers. Uh, we also had a couple of cool discussions around sort of the optimal way of eating for humans. And uh, <clears throat> I also gave my perspective on it that, uh, you know, sort of a, an animal-based or animal-sourced food as a foundation that, that we can sort of... Um, I don't know, because people want to have arguments. They want to fight online. And I, I think we, we agree more than we disagree if we just start talking in a similar language. Um, so so there, there are commonalities in, in what sort of diet approaches work for people. And, and context seems to be missing from most of these debates where are we talking about the sick, diseased, obese population or are we talking about lean, healthy people? And are you sedentary or are you very active? Are you training and what are you training and how much are you training? And uh, once we do start doing that, then, then the pieces are gonna fall into place uh, quite easily. So let, let's try once in a while to just take 
take a couple of steps back and, and look at this from a more holistic uh, perspective and, and you know realize that we we probably agree more than we disagree and and I would also advise people to to not get too dogmatic and, and believe they have sort of found one way of doing things that's going to be the ultimate way of doing things and again we're going to present the training program in in, in uh, like a couple of weeks time and this is never going to be a perfect model. There, there are no such thing as a perfect program. But I, I believe, based on my experience and my understanding of um, of the whole stress adaptation process and and how to grow a muscle, uh, and, and of course experience based as well, that, that this is currently one of the more effective models I've ever tried, both of myself and, and uh, some of my clients. Um, the same thing goes for the diet. I mean there will always be people that's going to protest and say, well, I need to eat more carbs than this, or I, I feel better on more carbs. And, you know, hey, then eat more carbs. If that works better for you, I can only present sort of an evidence-based model here. And, 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 and there's not always a whole lot of evidence for everything I claim. There's, there's going to be a lot of uh, personal bias in this based on what I have figured out. If I can get something to work in the most... In, in, in the toughest of cases, and myself being one of them, uh, I always had to struggle to, to get lean, strong, build muscle, and, and then apply those principles on, on, on several clients because the, the easy gainers don't approach me. They don't come to me. They have it all figured out already. So the, the people that I have worked with are the guys that, that the normal approaches never work for. So, so just cracking the code and all of these individual cases that amounts to a few thousand now is, is, is just um, and, and cracking that code also involved me having to dig through both research and and, and, and practical evidence from and, and discuss this with colleagues and, and basically try to build a model of the human body that can explain why some get great results and some always struggle to get results and that's why it's sort of expanded from carbs versus fats or high versus low volume to the the whole framework around it, like circadian rhythms and, and lifestyle and stress management. And it, it just sort sort of needs to all be in place if, if you want everything to be optimized. We, we can discuss three versus four sets all day long, but it's not going to mean anything if your sleep is crap, you know? So again, perspective, 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 and, and, and try to take many steps back and look at uh, the, the more holistic side of things before you get too stuck up your own ass uh, with your own head, as I am well aware of uh, being myself sometimes. But okay, I digress. Let's uh, get to the questions for today. And we will start off with the question In terms of hypertrophy, do you think there is a difference between an 8 rep max set to failure compared to a pre exhausted 15 rep max? Uh, failure reached at eight reps set to failure. Um, okay, so yeah, okay, so the question here seems to be if you already did uh, an isolation exercise and then used a 15 rep max load and so you hit failure at eight reps, how does that compare to doing an actual eight rep max set? Uh, that's, that's actually a pretty difficult question to answer. It, it, there seems to be, a, it's, you know, referring to the discussion we've had now around effective reps, that um, the last three to five reps of a set are the most effective. And in this case, 
if, if you already did a set for that muscle group and, and thus uh, reached failure faster, then I would argue that depending on the conditioning of the tissue at the time, which means depending on what loads that tissue has been experiencing, then they are pretty much equal. But there will be uh, a slight advantage to the pre-exhausted version simply because you had more volume to, uh, to get there. And again, this, this is why occlusion seems to work so well. It's because uh, the hypoxia created, like the lack of oxygen supply or blood supply to the muscle, leads to reaching failure faster with a given load. So if you were able to do 50 reps with your 20% of 1RM loads, then with an occlusion cuff, you would probably get there in 30 reps or even 25 reps. And, and that seems to be more effective um, not only because you reach failure faster, but there seems to be some metabolic mechanism involved that that's um, you know that's worth taking advantage of during certain parts of the training cycle. Um, okay, so the concept of shooting for certain strength goals. Um, like some will say, once you are squatting 200 kilos for five reps, you're not going to have small quads. And, um, you know, once you reach this or that strength goal, that's like a proxy or marker for having a certain muscle size or whatever. Um, I think that the, um, the podcast with Jeremy Lonica went in, into that. And even though a lot of people don't agree with Jeremy, um, I, I, I think we have enough evidence to show that strength and hypertrophy aren't like correlated perfectly so you can get stronger <clears throat> just doing singles like really low volume and best evidence of that are weightlifters and powerlifters some of them are just crazy strong in, in the lighter weight classes and, and they're you know some of them are outlifting their heavier uh the heavy weight classes so just relative strength um does not equal you know, muscle mass, contractile tissue. And we also know that some of the low load training methods like occlusion training uh, is able to create quite substantial hypertrophy without really increasing strength all that much. So no, I don't think a certain strength goal should be sort of a, a proxy for much of anything other than being able to lift that load. And I know that sounds maybe uh, self-explanatory, but as for strength uh, standards, you can go to exrx.net and go to weightlifting performance standards. There you can sort of, um, you can categorize your strength level on the bench press, the deadlift, the overhead press, power clean, power snatch, and squat according to your weight class. And just see, uh, you know, compare it to the last 50 years, or it's, it's actually almost 70 years of data on weightlifters and powerlifters and see where you're at personally. But, I mean, there, there's always going to be guys that are just really strong, but not really that big, uh, no matter how they train. And some guys are just, you know, bigger, but not as strong. I'm one of those. I have um, muscle mass that should allow me to lift a lot of weights in, in uh, many exercises. But due to injuries, due to probably being scared of heavy weights, due to my connective tissue not being the greatest, it has improved these last few years. But used to be really crap for a while and there are just many mechanisms involved reflexive mechanisms neural me mechanisms and self-protective mechanisms involved in the display of strength so 
the size of a muscle, even in the same person or even in identical twins, does not correlate well with um, the strength of that muscle or, or the strength of that lift. And I also think proxies like squat, bench, deadlift is, are really poor since biomechanics of people are so different. Um, I mean, look at Martin Burkan. Um, he's got an amazing deadlift for his body weight. I mean, he's deadlifting way over three times his own body weight, and he's got the world record in the seal row. Uh, but he's got like quite long legs and, and not the best levers for benching either, since he's got such long arms. So his his bench is like barely intermediate level, and and so some people are just going to be really strong in some exercises. And me, for instance, uh, my bench press always sucked. Or okay, back many many years ago, I think I was like. 24 or something, I managed to do um, a 200 kilo bench press, but that was like not the strictest of bench presses ever done. Um, and nowadays I might be good for like 130 kilos, maybe 135 if I were to do a 1RM, uh, that's a long time ago. Uh, but I can chin up, you know, own body weight plus 60, 70 kilos without problems. And there are guys that outbench me at 70 kilos of body weight, and they can barely do their own body weight in, in chin-ups. So, I mean, I, I think these types of strength standards or goals are, are fine, but not some sort of ultimate uh, template or something to strive for, because we each have our own strengths and weaknesses and biomechanics, and I don't even think most people should be doing deadlift and squats really heavy unless you have the biomechanics for it. So. There, there have been plenty of injuries from the compound lifts. Now, again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it uh, as a general rule, but I've just seen so many injuries with these type of uh, exercises that I, I think that all exercises have their pros and cons. And you could argue for some exercises over the standard compound lifts that people compete in but but then again you're going to have some bro at the gym or on the internet call you out on it so you know we all make our own decisions i guess um but i do believe that you can get big and strong without the compound lifts and i do believe you can uh, um you can get big without certain strength standards and i believe you can get really strong without necessarily looking very muscular uh, i have people at my own gym that's prove this point perfectly. There's this really sort of stringy guy, stringy looking guy, and he can outlift me in most exercises, but he doesn't even look like he lifts. So I guess, what do you prefer? I'm not really strong, but I, I do look like I lift. So I, I prefer that over uh, striving for some strength goal that just tended to get me hurt over and over again. Okay, next question. Starting strength runs nine hard sets of squats a week around your recommended volume. My question is, why do people stall on their squats then? And then eventually told to eat ginormous surplus and end up fat. Are they not deloading enough to resensitize? If they kept a moderate surplus, would their legs get jacked? Yeah, I guess this tends to be the common answer to everything. Just eat your way stronger. And, and I've seen this fail too many times to even count. So I know some people say that, well, do five reps or do eight reps or do six reps or whatever reps and just get stronger in that rep range and all your problems will be solved and you will end up big and strong and happy and have beautiful kids or a beautiful wife or whatever. But, you know, it's, 
uh, I'm just not a big fan of those reductionistic perspectives on anything because this field is way too complex. I mean, I don't mean to overly complicate it either because some people tend to complicate it too much. But again, don't let the pendulum swing all the way over to the other side and just say, hey, just do five reps or five sets or five sets of five reps eat and you know eventually you will end up strong. I, I believe there are many variables we can manipulate and, and progression models we can employ. And yeah, deloading will be one of those. And I don't think even five reps is the best rep target for, uh, you know, there's nothing magic about five reps or eight reps or anything. I believe you should actually try out different rep ranges and progress through those rep ranges and see what you sort of maybe uh, feel best on and progress faster on. And there will be people that have much better progress doing 12 to 15 reps than doing five to eight reps and, and, and vice versa. So there's no magic rep range. You, you always, again, need to consider the conditioning of the tissue, what loads it's, it's been exposed to, what volumes it's been exposed to, and maybe sometimes reset that sensitivity, start low, gradually build up, uh, have a certain sweet spot of uh, volume and frequency, monitor and adjust. I mean, we're we're you know trying to to hit a moving target here. It's it's not you can't break it down into a perfect combination of sets and reps and just sort of sell it as the ultimate program. We need to be guided by a certain set of principles on how the body adapts to a stimulus or a stressor and, and then sort of apply this thinking moving forward and then co continuously monitor and adjust and again, be aware of uh, external variables such as your life, lifestyle and recovery and, uh, and nutrition. So it's, it's a big puzzle, man. Um, there aren't ever going to be any simple answers, but for this one, I would say if you get stuck, perhaps yeah, it's it's time to deload and, and build back up, um, and perhaps even try higher reps for a while before you move into lower reps. For sure, it could also be worthwhile manipulating volume. It could even be that depending on how you feel doing squats, if you really love squats, then keep doing them. If you hate every squat session then for sure if you want to be that go hard or go home guy then then you know keep doing that but i've had my share of injuries and and uh, seen people get injured doing squats so i'm not so sure squats are for everyone um i tend to like unilateral leg exercises over squats but again let's not get too far off uh, into digression land here uh, to what extent can a metabolism adapt? Uh, that is, what kind of caloric differences have you seen in what people ate initially on a weight loss diet and what they have been able to lose weight on later? Um, and yeah, the, the next one too. Um, Lane Norton released a video called How Dieting Can Make You Fatter, talking about people who yo-yo have the propensity to put on larger fat cells over the long term, therefore suggesting a way metabolism can be hindered to some extent. I'm just paraphrasing here though. The research was done on rats and he does say it's his own theory, but it would be good to get Borges views on this. I would assume many would have found mentioned it if it was worth talking about when Bayesian bodybuilding destroyed metabolic damage theory. Um, 
uh, okay, so there, there's like plenty of, or, or there are many components uh, going on when it comes to caloric expenditure. Um, there's like, um, there's the basal metabolism, like lying flat in your bed all day. And that tends to to be pretty stable. There's not like a major variation. And during dieting, it will uh, drop both due to um, the adaptation to that weight loss, but also due to simply weighing less. So you have less body mass. Um, but there are also going to be uh, adaptations to spontaneous calorie expenditure, so how much you move around. Some people just get very lazy once they start dieting. And, um, you know, how much stress you impose on yourself during the dieting process. So, you know, some people will go from just, you know, training three days per week, then going to six days per week and doing cardio every day and applying a calorie de deficit at the same time, just generating a massive stress on their body. And, and so that's going to generate a completely different adaptation than if you did it the smart way. And um, there's the thermic, thermic effect of feeding that's different between carbs, fats, and proteins, uh, So which is why some tend to advocate eating more protein because it's you know both satiating and, and burns more calories being uh, digested and metabolized. Um, I tend to think there's more involved in that. You should also look at um, how it affects nutrient partitioning and, and uh, <clears throat> letting protein take the place of fats and carbs uh, also have consequences. Different discussion again. Um, and, and there's, yeah, obviously also the, the sort of um, adaptation for temperature and, and extraneous factors. but. There are so many both conscious and unconscious adaptations going on when people start dieting that, um, uh, again, self-reported calorie intake tends to be quite a lot lower than the actual calorie intake. You, you, you sort of selectively forget that because you're so hungry, you suddenly have a larger scoop, scoop of, uh, of peanut butter than you used to have, or you, you sort of forget that extra... Uh, protein drink or apple you had or, you know, whatever. It, it just tends, there tends to always be an explanation for the dieting failures of people. Um, so, so there's an adaptive component that you spontaneously uh, preserve calories because the body perceives the calorie deficit uh, as such. Uh, and also just the ability for conscious intervention to prevent yourself from consuming more calories it's, it's going to be harder and harder the deeper into a diet you get. So, um, but to give a practical example, I have had plenty of girls dieting on 1,200 to 1,500 calories and, and just getting stuck forever, uh, feeling cold, having all the symptoms of being hypothyroid. And um, after some, let's call it metabolic recovery, which basically just entails none of that reverse dieting crap, but just going straight to maintenance calories and accepting the, the rapid weight gain that's going to happen at that point simply because the body wants to compensate and, and it's going to be some massive water retention at first. And then after things have stabilized and you start gradually dropping calories and, and picking better foods and all that stuff that goes into the uh, nutrient partitioning pathways that I have discussed lately, again, not looking at the calories in, calories out model, but what the body is actually doing with those calories. 
storing or using them for calories or muscle building or recovery, you know, that's that can change. Um, and that's that same girl that would get stuck around 1,500 calories is now losing fat on 2,000, 2,200 calories. I've done this so many times I've lost count. And, and it's, it's not like a miracle. It's, it's not like I could win the Nobel Prize because they're, you know, creating energy out of nothing or something. Uh, or, you know, there's some fusion going on here. Um, but, it, but it's simply the, the complexity of, of the, the survival mechanism uh, that the human body is, where it, especially in women, wants to uh, take care of fertility and, and um, re like reproductive function and survival, first of all, and, and uh, looking hot in a bikini, last of all. So uh, you're just going to have to expect, expect that it mounts the massive uh, defense uh, system against this to prevent this weight loss becoming dangerous which is why taking the slow and easy option and, and having a sustainable approach to food and training is the only way that is going to work long term. So so that's just a practical example. I've seen people over and over again being able to diet on 500 calories or more and lose fats compared to their earlier attempts that were, that were simply too extreme. Now let me say offhand that this is obviously not for someone that's obese and, and that you shouldn't place them on a protein-sparing modified fast just to get them, you know, dropping in weight as soon as possible. It's about the available stored energy in your fat cells that your body has um, combined with the incoming calories. So the leaner you are, so th this tends to be a problem for girls that have been on the eternal cut or bulk cycles or eternal dieting, and they're already quite lean. Um, getting into sort of that range where, you know, they have a normal body fat, uh, but they want to get leaner since that's what they have seen online. And um, they're simply just dieting so hard that the available energy, again, the combination of stored body fat and incoming energy, calories, carbs and fats, is too low and the body is sensing this as dangerous and mounting a huge cortisol response and just basically shutting off the metabolism, not shutting off, but you know what I mean. Um, and, and basically compensating. The brain is you know, telling every system in, in the body to eat more food and so you start sneaking in more calories and, and you don't wanna move around so you need to keep increasing your caffeine dose or pre-workout dose, simply getting to the gym and, and you're massively stressed out so you have you know, water retention uh, all over that masks the, the fat loss you have actually generated. And again, just a lot of stuff going on that, that uh, makes people think that, um, you know, um, or, or just a lot of stuff going on to, to protect the body from, uh, from fat loss. So extreme approaches will lead to short-term impressive results, but they're not gonna be sustainable. Uh, what fat intake Borg uses to prescribe for op optimal hormonal output and maximize hypertrophy? Uh, Mendel normally speaks about 40% of um, resting energy expenditure. Is this number legit? Well, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, generally speaking, 40% of uh, your maintenance calories is a good number to start off with. But relating to the answer I just provided on the earlier question here, um, available fat is the sum of your stored body fat and incoming dietary or, or like dietary fat. So 
you can be uh, quite overweight and obese and uh, mobilize a lot of fatty acids and eat no fats at all, perhaps one or two grams of omega-3s just for sort of because it's healthy and all. And your hormones are going to just improve simply because you're losing fat and reducing inflammation. Uh, whereas if you're very lean, you have uh, sing single-digit body fat levels for a guy and maybe 12 to 13% for a woman, 14% uh, or so, then you should definitely have a lot more dietary fats. Um, I have, uh, I think 40% should be the minimum. I tend to think that higher fat diets work better than leaner you are, uh, simply because it needs to replace the, the, um, the fat calories you're unable to mobilize from your fat stores. So I know that's not a specific answer, but sorry, I can't give you any, because it will also depend on the rest of your diet and your food choices. Like, there's a difference between, uh, you know, using vegetable oils or nuts or avocados or animal-sourced fats or whatever, you know. So, again, it, it will depend on a lot of things, the, the quality of your fats, not just the total fat intake. Uh, what do you think about sauna and what would be its implications on hypertrophy? Uh, I think in general, both uh, sort of red lights and ultraviolet light mm -hmm. and um, near-infrared uh, spectrum have some very uh, interesting effects. I wouldn't go to the, I wouldn't go as far as to invest in an infrared sauna or using all of these red lights. I have though, uh, but I would prefer to spend our money just going to. Uh, you know, Spain or something in the middle of winter to get sunlight because I think sunlight is the most natural and, and most awesome way to get both heat and the different uh, spectrum of the light in a more natural way. Um, but both heat and cold has its place in, in um, functioning as hormetic stressors, which means it can uh, be a benefit to the human organism. So cold, a cold stressor has been shown to be uh, anti-inflammatory and um, um, fat mobilizing and you know shivering thermogenesis and uh, white into brown fat conversions. And there's a lot of cool stuff going on there. And, and heat seems to be very beneficial to sort of modulate the inflammation process that at some point during the recovery process from weight training, is beneficial, but at a certain point, if it goes too far or for too long, it becomes um, destructive. So sauna right after training or in connection with training or as perhaps part of the warm up or something, or sometimes on the off days for sure. I fully support that if you have easy access to it, um, but there's not gonna be any magic to it at all. But uh, you know, try it out. Can too much NEAT, meaning non-exercise activity thermogenesis, just spontaneous movement, such as high step counts, all at very low intensity stuff, hinder lower body hypertrophy? Uh, not per se, but like everything in life is a matter of degrees. So if you are on your feet all day long and your legs are tired as fuck, and <laughs> you will notice if it hinders your recovery or, uh, or strength in the gym. So I don't think I need to tell you this. Uh, and again, it's a matter of what you have been used to. So if you've been sedentary and you suddenly start a job where you need to be on your feet eight hours per day, your workouts are going to suffer. Uh, 
if you are on your feet eight hours per day, every day, and you get a different job that allows you to be on your feet only for four hours per day, then that's going to be beneficial. You're probably going to notice that your workouts are easier. So again, what are you doing now and what are you adding on top of that? And, you know, context, context, context. Uh, for those who enjoy and perform best with morning workouts, would a zero-carb diet be more beneficial than a regular carbs-based diet? Since Borga himself trains early, have you experienced the difference between the two types of diets? Yes, and this is uh, related to uh, my sort of preference for like a lower-carb approach, high-fat approach, um, or a keto-based approach, or just having some keto adaptation during the year. Um, you know, potentially just coordinated with the seasons or uh, where you live or uh, your personal carb tolerance. But for sure, a zero carb approach where you are fat adapted and running on fat as fuel and ketones as fuel, you're going to notice that you have much better morning workouts simply because you're not depending on blood glucose to fuel anything. Uh, whereas people on carb-based workouts that are metabolically inflexible, meaning that they don't have a shred of keto adaptation in their body and they haven't ha been doing a low carb diet for the last 10 to 20 years or their whole life, then for sure they're probably gonna notice that the morning fasted workout is gonna suck. Having said that, I'm not necessarily a big fan of fasted workouts. Um, I do think there are benefits of having some nutrients um, in the bloodstream as you finish up your workout simply because the whole digestive process is going to take at least 30 to 60 minutes before any amino acids are available. And, and the more advanced you are, the shorter the, the, shorter the time frame is for, for the muscle building process. So, so I think there are, um, there are going to be some benefits to, to having some nutrients. It doesn't have to be a full meal, but at least in my case, I just had like three eggs and... Uh, a teaspoon of honey or something and then hit the gym and then uh, had a meal afterwards so so and the workouts were better than training completely fasted but again some people get depending on what they eat they do get um less energetic when they go to the gym um and so their performance might be better if they train fasted than fed and, and so it's it's going to be a, a decision you're going to have to make yourself if there aren't any potential downsides, muscle building wise, but you notice you have better workouts, so you can create a better uh, anabolic stimulus, perhaps that's worthwhile. Uh, so, so this one is, is just gonna be preference and, and try both approaches. Most people get sleepy after eating simply because they eat too much. So, so try having just a very light or small meal, in my case, three eggs. I mean, that's, that's barely 20 grams of protein and 15 grams of fat. So it's, it's not a lot of calories. Could you talk a little bit about happiness and bodybuilding? Maybe your own experiences with it. I, I'm not gonna dig deeper into that, but, but simply say that um, I have competed myself in fitness and bodybuilding. Um, I have worked with competitors that thought that winning the nationals or a world championship title would be the ultimate goal in life and they would forever be happy. But we just have no fucking idea what's going to make us happy. We do. We believe we have 
uh, you know, certain goals and achievements that are going to make us happy, a certain amount of money or uh, sports success or, or like monetary sport or relationship success. If I only end up with that person, I'm going to be forever happy. If I get top grades on my exams, I'm going to be forever happy. But again, all research and practical evidence shows that this baseline or this happiness is very transitory and just goes back to baseline afterwards. They have, for instance, looked at um, like comparing someone that loses their legs and someone that wins the lottery. And you would expect that the person that wins the lottery, lottery would be a lot more happy and the person that loses their legs and end up in a wheelchair for the rest of their lives will be forever unhappy. But over time, they all end up at the same point. So, and, and sometimes the, the, the person in the wheelchair uh, is actually happier because they appreciate life more. Whereas the person that just won the lottery and spent all their money and, and realized that, um, yeah, money could allow for experiences or material goods that provided short-term happiness, but happiness is found inside yourself. Uh, and also, looking a certain way, lifting a certain weight, winning a certain championship, you might be happy at that moment in time, but the next next day is when I get a lot of phone calls or emails where people are just very unha unhappy because winning that competition did not improve their self-image at all. So what they still see in the mirror is someone fat or ugly or uh, not worth being loved for. And, and so th that trophy or, or medal or whatever just couldn't make up for the, the missing piece inside of themselves. So a central part of my coaching is teaching people how to maybe not love themselves because you know loving yourself is sort of a self-help guru kind of concept and I don't think we could ever just be walking around completely loving ourselves, but we can start accepting ourselves and who we are and what we are. And, and uh, that's gonna provide more freedom and be more liberating to simply accept that, hey, this is, you know, regardless of body fat percentage or how much I can bench or how big my biceps are, um, I, I, I still truly accept myself and, and my worth as a human being is not reliant on any external uh, validation or, uh, you know, what I look like or how big my bank account is or who I spend my time with. And, and getting to that point is, is probably never going to happen for some people because they get lost in these things. Um, but uh, others might know it deep inside. That's how they should feel. And so they kind of feel strange in the world because everyone is chasing external goals and and so they they have these identity crises all the time believe me i've, I've talked with people from both ends of the spectrum and um, people on one side tend to think that the others have it all and, and vice versa so it's that whole the grass is greener on the other side mindset that you just need to let it go man i mean winning in bodybuilding i lost every competition but i'm you know, I still accept myself and think I'm a pretty good guy. So um, I don't believe that winning those contests would have made me into something other than I am today or a better person or uh, made me more loved. I mean, my my girlfriend and my, my son loves me the way I am. And whether I'm angry or uh, happy or, uh, you 
you know, thick or, or fat, fat or skinny. Um, well, maybe my girlfriend wouldn't, but no, I'm kidding. But but again, I have met overweight and less attractive people that charm me and attract me more just because they are so carefree and, and happy and authentic and charismatic. And I have met supermodels that just completely turned me off because they were just not very interesting people. There was no charisma, no magnetic attraction at all. So looks is just another thing in the world. It's, it's, it's not the end all be all. Okay, so that was the highlight of the philosophical part of uh, this Q&A. Um, but no, I haven't been happier looking a certain way ever. Um, what gave me ultimate happiness was that was getting a son. Being, being a father was the ultimate happiness for me, still is, even though it can be a pain in the ass some days. Uh, and I don't think you can ever be just happy all the time, but my general happiness um, is not correlated with my body fat percentage or muscle size at all. And I don't know anyone that this is true for. They might think so, but I think the most unhappy people are the ones that are always chasing some physical. And the leaner and more muscular you are, at, at some point it just messes with your head, man. And, and you just lose touch with reality. Okay, did you see people achieving hypertrophy doing only one set per muscle group per training session? Uh, you were talking about 85% of training effect from one to two sets only, so conclusion is doing less sets equals less progress, but some progress nevertheless. And it is still better than no progress due to under-recovery. Okay, I, I, okay so, so the central theme of this is that is it possible to achieve muscle growth doing only one set? And yes, I do believe it is. Uh, that one set is probably not going to create massive hypertrophy um, unless you also do frequency. So the weekly volume, um, <clears throat> like doing a certain amount of volume within a certain time span seems to be the key. And obviously we're still debating whether doing higher volumes twice per week or once per week or doing like one set every day and, and you know, the full spectrum there. Um, but I just think that by itself that one set if it's done to failure can absolutely create some robust hypertrophy in unconditioned tissue but if you are moving from doing 10 sets of heavy loads doing one set of a 20 rm that's probably not going to create a lot of hypertrophy it's at best going to just maintain what you already have so again context you need to look at what that muscle tissue has been exposed to for the last few weeks and applying one set to deconditioned tissue is going to generate probably the same hypertrophy that three to five sets would do. Uh, but those three to five sets might create a lot of inflammation that takes a long time to recover from. As you get more conditioned and, and, and the tissue mounts an adaptive response, which involve, involves both growing larger, but also uh, making the connective tissue and, and um, the contractile tissue and, and, and everything um, around it, like basically creating a response that will protect that muscle from further damage, that threshold will keep moving up. So at that point, you're gonna have to choose, add volume, add load. You can do both. Um, 
I tend to think that just adding volume indiscriminately tends to run into problems sooner rather than later for all reasons we have discussed before, which is why I tend to think that sort of gradually working up to a sweet spot, not the maximum recoverable, but something in between the minimum and maximum. And I believe that point is way lower than most evidence-based people in the industry recommend. Um, having an appropriate frequency according to your individual recovery curve or a sweet spot there as well. And then just focus on adding loads until you hit, hit a certain maximum deload, like rest the muscle completely to resensitize the tissue and wash, rinse, and repeat, basically. Repeat the process. That, that's, to me, the most sustainable approach to this. Um, <clears throat> maybe we can address the question that while research shows earlier feeding during, during the day being beneficial, some people do report sleeping better with a fuller stomach and having trouble sleeping if they eat too far from bedtime due to getting hungry. What would be the advice for such individuals? I did address this question in, in a discussion in the Facebook group. So um, the, the short answer is that this tends to indicate some sort of like circadian mismatch or desynchronization. Um, if you don't, if you have adapted to this way of eating, then you're gonna have to keep doing it because just switching from one to the other, if you suddenly tried early time-restricted feeding and ate dinner at six, then you're probably gonna struggle for at least three to five days. So adapting is, is, a, is a core concept. So very often when people say that they struggle doing this or that, it's because they tried it once or maybe two or three days. They didn't give the body a chance to adapt because the entrainment of hunger and uh, satiety, or hunger more specifically, is uh, that takes a few days. And, and obviously there's a, there's a satiety component here that if you tend to save up calories for the evening, then you're gonna be starving, uh, which is why the studies tend to differ so much in their interpretation of eating breakfast versus skipping bre breakfast and whether that leads to eating more food in total for the day or vice versa. Uh, I have seen both of these and I think it again is gonna depend on what demographic we're looking at. So for obese people, a lot of obese people due to being insulin resistant and due to snacking all day and, and eating high calorie density foods simply aren't hungry in the morning because uh, the body is mobilizing a lot of fatty acids. But since they are insulin resistant and all the hunger signaling and everything, it just isn't functioning as well as it should, they might skip breakfast and then they sort of make up for it later. But it's not the eating pattern, pattern causing the obesity. So once you start adding breakfast to these people, I, they tend to start to reset the circadian rhythm because it's been shown that most of these people have a desynchronized circadian rhythm due to eating so late. So once you start introducing breakfast and having them reduce their food consumption later in the day, when they adapt to this, they spontaneously reduce their calorie intake. Whereas um, some people that are healthy, lean, expending a lot of calories, um, doing everything correctly, eating good food, they can skip breakfast, stay healthy, stay lean. They can eat late. It's not going to have a major effect <clears throat> other than probably skewing their sleep rhythm later. Um, 
And my answer to the person in the group that asked this question was that I have heard people tell me this many times. Um, and that initially, because I, I started doing experimentation on this two years ago when I was working on a book on circadian rhythm um, and the biorhythm diet. Um, and I tended to see that, well, first of all, people reported being hungry in the evening, but they uh, they kept kept it up simply because they trusted me. And after usually a week, they started to adapt to this. They had more food earlier in the day around their workouts, obviously, and um, but stopped eating food sometime after six or seven p.m. And everyone. I haven't had one exception to that rule yet, tell me that they were hungry when they went to bed or woke up hungry. So people that are used to eating large meals just before bedtime, yes, you become dependent on that. And you will most likely be one of those that tend to need to wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, or you just tend to wake in the middle of the night simply because the digestive process and, and uh, hormonal rhythms and leptin and all of that stuff is skewed later and later and, and so the body will sort of wake because it thinks it should be awake at that time uh, due to spikes in, in all of these hormones and, and there's just a lot of good research showing that this is the case that eating late skews the rhythms of the satiety hormones and, and, uh, and cortisol um, and of course meal timing is entrained so if you're used to eating at that time then you will have to keep eating at that time until you break the cycle uh, but again, yeah, most feedback or all feedback was that people started getting sleepier sooner, uh, usually around nine or 10, like three to four hours after the last meal or two to three hours afterwards. Um, they tended to sleep better, wake up earlier and just feel more rested. And, and there was something about, um, and, and most importantly, di their digestion uh, felt much better. And that's because the digestive process slows down at a certain point in the afternoon, coinciding with the melatonin release and, and all of the stuff going on to prepare the body for sleep, rest and, and digest, basically. So everything just slows down and having a large meal at that point, I, I, I'm not a big fan of it. I know a lot of people can get away with it, but my advice is to stop doing it. <clears throat> And uh, finally, what are the most important considerations for older lifters with regard to training, nutrition, and recovery? I am 50 years old, but I think older could probably be anything over 40 to 45 years of age. Um, yeah, in, in general, um, we have something called anabolic resistance, where at a certain point, um, a muscle cell becomes resistant to the amino acid signal and the training signal, so you can expect to get less muscle growth out of it. Having said that, I have seen this tend to tie strongly into inflammation, and uh, which is why anti-inflammatory drugs tend to improve muscle growth in older lifters, but hinder it in younger lifters. Again, back to the modulating inflammation, not stopping it or promoting it, but finding just the sweet spot for everything. So an older person, I believe, can grow muscle just as fast as a younger lifter. But if you've been lifting for many, many years, then your connective tissue turnover is going to slow down and, and your joints and, and everything, you're probably more easily inflamed. So, so I would say um, carb tolerance tends to drop, so you should reduce your carb intake. Hormones tend to drop, so you should keep your fat intake high. 
Um, you should uh, probably choose a lower lifting speed, avoid explosive lifting. Uh, you should probably have a more moderate approach, again, a more sustainable approach to, to training in general. Um, <clears throat> if it takes longer for inflammation to subside after a given workout and reduce your frequency or volume, uh, and again, be more conscious of lifting techniques and what exercises you choose. Uh, but other than that, you know, I've had clients uh, that were 60 and 70 years old and they made great gains. I even helped an older woman uh, that was 60 years old to win. No, okay, she played second in her debut fitness competition, having never competed before. So, you know, I think age is just a number. And, and no matter what age you are, just sort of um, you're older and wiser probably. So, so just be more aware of um, how your body feels after a given intervention and, and adjust accordingly. And with that, we are just hitting the 60 minute mark. So I'm gonna end on that note. And I hope this was very informative. And if you are uh, watching this or listening to this uh, after the live show, then um, I would ask you to go to sustainableselfdevelopment.com and register there for getting notified when the next Q&A will be. And basically just follow the, the Facebook group where we have some pretty uh, interesting and enlightening discussions on all things sustainable. Thank you for joining. Have a great evening. All right, guys, hope you enjoyed this episode. And once again, if you haven't checked it out already, be sure to visit the Sustainable Self-Development Facebook group at facebook.com slash sustainable self-development. And if you haven't done it already, visit sustainableselfdevelopment.com to be up to date with everything that we've got going on there. All right, thank you for hanging on up until now and see you in the next episode.